everyone, it's the 16th of December, 2022. This is the Room Now podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. You know, the weather outside is frightful. This week, our posts were just delightful. Since you've no place to go, let's start the show. You know, it's almost flu season. The MMWR yesterday put out an interesting report about flu being uh, occurring along with COVID. Uh, this is actually a study from 21-22 flu season and really looked at kids who were hospitalized with influenza and who died um, during that season. Interestingly, uh, the large number they had, 6% of those kids who had proven flu who were in the hospital also were co-infected with SARS-CoV-2. These, in general, those who had the dual infection required more uh, respiratory, mechanical, non-mechanical support. Um, while it didn't seem to augment the risk of death, the those kids with influenza who died, why did they die? They died because they had not received vaccination against influenza. They had not received antiviral therapy. They had several comorbidities, or they had co-infection with COVID-19. Again, it's the twin-demic or triple-demic. Um, make sure your patients get vaccinated against the flu and are up to date with their COVID vaccinations as well. Um, in today's report, you'll see an um, analysis of, of our patients who have been vaccinated amongst the, rheumat or the rheumatic patients. Uh, that comes from the GRA. I think you'll find that interesting. I found a report of 172 patients who had fever, rash, and arthralgia. Um, not all of them had Stills disease, only 112. But in this particular report, the investigators looked at a streamlined diagnostic process, meaning, uh, and, and again, not all of them were diagnosed with Stills disease at first visit, but at first visit, they employed this diagnostic process. I think they did this retrospectively. And they looked specifically at, um, you know, a left shift in neutrophilia, hyperferritin anemia, and high IL-18 levels. Using this, these diagnostic parameters right at the time of diagnosis, they say they could shorten the time to diagnosis by 50%. So instead of four weeks, it went down to two weeks. And people who met those three parameters when you had fever, rash, and arthralgia. Again, it kind of is the triad of Stills disease. They were so not only did they make an earlier diagnosis, they were also more apt to achieve remission when they made an earlier diagnosis, 85% versus 68%. There's something to be said for not just having the triad in diagnosing Stills disease, high fever, arthritis, and the Stills rash, but maybe also having these worrisome findings right at the outset. The neutrophilia expect the hyperferritinemia is only 50%. High IL-18, high, high IL we don't usually do, but it is commercially available. It's an interesting proposal that they put forth. Uh, you might remember at ULAR and at ACR, it's actually at ACR, we reported on the use of denosumab in treating uh, inflammatory hand osteoarthritis, showing that it had protective effects against developing erosions. Unfortunately, it did not benefit pain and other clinical parameters. 
So where that's going to go in erosive OA, no one knows. Well, I found another small open label study, this one of 43 RA patients on DMARD therapy who were randomized to receive either denosumab or placebo for 24 weeks. And they looked at erosions by high resolution QCT. And they showed just looking really at the most predictive joints in the hands, the MCP2 and 3, that being on denosumab had no protective effect. Um, this sort of mirrors an earlier study that was done with denosumab in RA patients, suggesting that even though it's a potent inhibitor of osteoclasts as a rank ligand inhibitor, um, it doesn't prevent erosions. Again, that's a little disappointing. A Swedish study of almost 4,000 incident RA patients looked at their exposure to occupational uh, inhalants and they showed that, again, pollution, smoke, and all other occupational inhalants, we talked about this last week, that include people who work on cement and, and whatnot, that uh, increases the risk of, ha of having ACPA, increases the risk of having ACPA and with RA by 25%. When you take these inhal in inhalants that are basically pollutants, and you are also a smoker, um, and it's a bad combination that along with the shared epitope gives you an 18 fold increased risk of developing RA. Again, there's this confluence of factors that are needed to, you know, put enough keys in the lock to turn it, to turn it into rheumatoid arthritis. Um, it's a nice report and I believe in, uh, annals rheumatic disease. Um, a retrospective study from the VA looked at the predictive value of RDW. I don't know if you look at RDW in the CBC. I often do. It's a, a, an it's a cheap and easy inflammatory marker that's not always reflected in the SED rate and CRP. But with a high RDW, I, I'm concerned about inflammation. In their study, they showed RDW plus a, um, the absolute lymphocyte count was predictive of 10-year mortalities in a significant manner. So um, if you really had both a low ALC, absolute lymphocyte count, and a high RDW, oops, not a good combination in rheumatoid arthritis patients. This was drawn from a VA study of over 327 RA patients and then validated on a national cohort of almost 14,000 patients. So cheap and easy measures just from the CBC that can help you in RA. The FRAW study is just in time for Christmas. This is a study of first-line options of systemic JIA treatment or Stills disease treatment. There's a prospective study, I think it was supported by CARA, uh, to assess treatment approaches in systemic JIA. They showed that 86% of systemic JIA patients were treated at the outset with either an IL-1 or an IL-6 inhibitor. Congratulations, 14% got a non-biologic DMAR treatment at the outset. Of those people, more than half of them proceeded to get a biologic um, in, I think, the first six months. And again, half of the non-biologic patients uh, were on, uh, uh, um, again, actually within four months is the number. The interesting thing was that the biologic patients required less steroids, 50% uh, were on steroids, whereas the non-biologics, almost all of them were on high-dose steroids. So um, this ACR, guideline approved approach of first line IL-6, IL-1 therapy in systemic JIA makes a great deal of sense. 
uh, a retrospective analysis of autoimmune patients receiving hydroxychloroquine during pregnancy showed that amongst um, a large cohort of RA, lupus, UCTD, and even antiphospholipid patients, almost 80% of them were taking hydroxychloroquine during the pregnancy. Uh, and those who were on hydroxychloroquine, guess what? Not surprising, uh, significant reductions in preeclampsia, um, early onset of preeclampsia, and second and third trimester pregnancy losses, all less, significantly less when you were taking hydroxychloroquine. Again, why someone with at least lupus and, and really anyone who's on hydroxychloroquine doesn't continue it during pregnancy is beyond um, my understanding. Uh, quiz question. What are the rheumatic causes of pericarditis? Hmm. All right. I know you're driving. I know you're running. I know you're folding clothes. Think about it. I'm going to come up with four. All right. What are your top four? My top four would be Stills disease. because That's my favorite disease. Um, lupus. Um, MCTD. No. Myositis. Yeah. Um, I don't know. What else? Well, here's the list. Um, and of course, you know, there's a primary um, recurrent pericarditis syndrome. It's an auto-inflammatory syndrome. It's not on this list. That's a very IL-1 responsive disorder for which IL-1 therapy is indicated and FDA approved, at least with, um, what's it, uh, the Regeneron product called Arcalist. Um, so here are the causes. SLE, RA, MCTD, myositis, EGPA, less so GPA, IgG4-related disease. A lot of the auto-inflammatory disease get pericarditis, FMF, TRAPS, CAPS, STILLS, JIA, sarcoidosis, Kawasaki's, GCA, and Takeyasu's rounds out the list, according to one report we featured this week. So speaking of pericarditis, we'll talk about pericarditis in SLE from a cohort of almost 700 SLE patients. What do you think was the prevalence of pericarditis? In their cohort, it was 16.4%. The clinical associations with pericarditis included, um, and these are significant correlations with renal disease, lymphopenia, and thrombocytopenia, and also antiphospholipid antibodies. I find that surprising. So I'm not surprised about lymphopenia, thrombocytopenia. I've known those to be associated with cardiac involvement, myocarditis, pericarditis, uh, antiphospholipid I find surprising. But nonetheless, instructional. You know what's on the rise? Goodwill, that's right. Christmas spirit, that's right. And yes, syphilis, they all go together, do they not? No, they don't go together. I'm sorry about that. But yeah, the U.S. Um, uh, Public Health Service has put out an announcement that uh, syphilis is on the rise. It's risen fivefold since 2001, um, where it used to be, um, uh, uh, well, now the most recent number in 2019 was 11 per 100,000 cases, uh, and that's significantly up fivefold. So the U.S. PSTF, that's the Public Public Health Service Task Force recommends that patients at risk for syphilis, um, it's going to be a lot of young people with risk factors, should be tested. And that 
Instead of doing RPR and VDRLs, they recommend that you do an automated treponemal test first, like a, an immunoassay, because actually there's too many false positives and the other ones are much more specific and also really, really dirt cheap. So again, the US Public Health Service recommends, they call this reverse sequencing, that things you used to do last, now you do first. I found that interesting. Hopefully you do too. A review that we put out exactly one week ago talked about hydradenitis suppurativa uh, and the risk of inflammatory arthritis. Um, we had a few reports and uh, one featured a meta-analysis of seven studies that had over 200,000 uh, HS uh, hydradenitis patients compared to um, almost twice that number and showed that HS patients have an increased risk of inflammatory arthritis 3.44 odds ratio, that's almost three and a half fold. Other studies were featured in that article made the same claim and of the inflammatory arthropathies, actually spondyl arthritis is, the, is leading the pack and that includes axial spondyl arthritis with a two-fold increased risk um, and, um, and, and even psoriatic arthritis uh, and ankylosing spondylitis, even RA has a two-fold increased risk. Turns out that if you have hydradenitis and you're B27 positive, that greatly increases the risk, and as you would imagine, of getting ankylosing spondylitis or spondyl arthritis. I've, I've seen a number of patients in my clinic manage them. Um, as you know, TNF inhibitors seem to work well in that, and, uh, and we do know that uh, adalimumab is FDA approved for that, but I've had success with IL-17 inhibitors as well and other agents. Um, but again, we're waiting on studies to be done in this particular area. Uh, a very disheartening paper this week from uh, JAMA about uh, diet and exercise in obese osteoarthritis patients who have knee OA. So this was 823 knee OA patients, average age 65. They were overweight or obese with a BMI greater than 27, and they were randomized in an 18-month trial to either have a diet and exercise versus a control of no intervention uh, and at the end of 18 months, the healthy group, the diet and exercise group, um, had a minimal reduction in Womack pain, minus 0.6. The MCID was, um, it was not even reaching the MCID, which was minus 1.6, I think was the number. So while um, the intervention group of diet and exercise did better than the placebo group, you know, um, and, and they did a little bit better as far as weight loss. It didn't make a difference in overall pain. This is really disheartening because, you know, your best therapy is also your easiest therapy is also sometimes your hardest therapy to get uh, implemented. And that is diet and exercise. But this kind of research goes against what other uh, uh, research says out there, which diet and exercise does work except a lot of those studies are done in academic centers. This was done in a community center, uh, which sort of may um, counterbalance some of those former results. What's your experience? As you, I, you know, I think we all get frustrated in treating um, uh, NEOA of patients who are obese by encouraging weight loss. We do know that weight loss works, but it has to be significant. Uh, and the role of diet, I think that would be speculative, especially in, in NEOA. Uh, anyway, this is, I found a little bit surprising. We're going to end with an Ask Cush Anything um, uh, recording from uh, Southern California. Let's listen up. 
Hi, Dr. Kush. This is Dr. Van Gelder practicing out in Southern California. I had a question about patients who have asymptomatic CK elevations with a large macro CK component. Do you typically work these patients up or follow them serially for autoimmune conversion, or how do you approach your management? Thanks. Thanks, Howard. Um, you totally confused me, and you know your question sent me to the computer to study because I have no idea what macro CK is. Now I do know, thanks to you. Um, I'll start with the first question of what do I do with patients who have unexplained elevated CKs? Um, you know, I am a firm believer in labs do not diagnose um, conditions, especially, you know, labs like CKs that are um, less than 500 or maybe CKs even less than 1,000. Um, where I live in Dallas, Texas, and I have uh, all races and colors of people, African-Americans are really known to have higher CK elevations out of the normal range that will often, usually 90% of the time mean absolutely nothing. I just follow them. And if they don't have weakness and um, you know mu true muscle symptoms, I don't do anything about it. I tend to get serious with CKs greater than 1,000. Am I missing things between CKs of 500 and 1,000? Occasionally, you know, uh, some um, of the lesser known forms of myopathy might be um, in that range. You know, sometimes even patients who have inclusion body myositis may be in that range. I think it is the chronicity and the symptoms. I, when I do see elevated CKs, I always check thyroid function. Uh, I always look at lipids, trying to find myxedema and hypothyroidism. Um, I, uh, as you know, JAK inhibitors can give you a little CKemia that has no clinical consequence. But you asked the greater question of when you did, you did isotyping, I assume, on your elevated CK, and you didn't say what it was, but I'm gonna assume it's in the 300 to 1000 range. Um, and isoenzymes can maybe give you the, 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 the answer as to where it's coming from, muscle, heart, or, 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 or organs or brain. Um, and with isoenzymes, you can get, you know, MBBB, um, uh, MM fractions. And then when one of those fractions is combined with an autoantibody, that's then called macro CK. Type one macro CK is CKBB combined with uh, an IgG. And there's a concern about cardiac disease and, and in those people. Um, you often can see, you may see that in people who have autoimmune disease. Um, and then the type 2 or the, is when CK is, um, let me see now, what is that combined with? Um, again, with an autoantibody, it's actually the MB, I believe, is combined with um, the autoantibody. And that should maybe give you concern about liver disease and or malignancy. But again, it's a lab test. And if you have no clinical indication from other labs and your good exam and a good review of systems, I don't go on fishing expeditions um, unless it's greater than a thousand, unless it's something, because you can get these uh, macro CKs in people who have autoantibodies, whether they're pathogenic autoantibodies or non-pathogenic. So again, I'm looking for a good history, a good physical, serial follow-up, um, uh, and a 
and and that's it. I again looking for thyroid disease. I might do an S pep if you don't know that they have an autoimmune disease. They don't have an autoimmune disease. Maybe there's something else there for you to look at. Um, they should good good health maintenance. But I don't believe that one um, an elevated CK bears um, the need for uh, iso enzymes. I don't generally do that. Or they'll look for macro CK because you'll often find it and it is a finding of clinical insignificance. If you look at the literature on this, on what things were found, found it's all over the map from nothing to fibromyalgia to liver disease to post MI to a cancer to a polymyalgia. I mean, it's really all over the map. So finding macro CK doesn't seem like to me it has the diagnostic specificity. But now we have to take into account you're talking to a guy who doesn't know what he's talking about because I just heard about macro CK five minutes before I did this report. So let's all study up on that and um, write a paper. Let's do it after Christmas. I hope all of you have a great holiday. Uh, I know I'm going to do the same in the next two weeks. Uh, the podcast is going to be a best of podcast, just like on our website and our email is going to be best of the year. Uh, and then we'll open the new year with the best of 2022, uh, both a podcast and an article that I'll write. If you have a suggestion of what you think was the highlight event or news item or journal article, please email me at Jack Cush or Jack Cush at roomnow.com. I'd like to put your suggestion in my end of year, best of the year in rheumatology. Enjoy the holiday. Always a pleasure to be with you. Take care.